Well, let's get in today's lesson. We're going to be in Mark 8 today. We've been walking through uh, the, the gospel of Mark, and today I think we're going to land in some really good and healthy spots. Uh, if you guys don't know this, I've been married for a little over 11 years. It's been 11 great years of my life. Uh, and I think that just now, maybe you spouses out there can understand this, I'm entering into a decade, I just now feel like I'm starting to understand my role as a spouse, I'm really starting to understand my wife, maybe, maybe she's always been there, I'm just really trying to understand my role, uh, and I, I, what I get from people <clears throat> who have been down the road further in marriage, I just celebrate, my grandma passed away, and I just celebrate 67 years of marriage. It's just, it's just uncommon today in this culture to see 67 years of marriage. But when I talk to those people who are in their 60 years of marriage or 50, they just say, hey, here's the honest truth. It gets sweeter. The more years that I'm, I've been married to this lady, uh, we've just learned through our commitment, working out our struggles together in unison, that this just becomes more of a, a oneness here. So I'm looking forward to that. But certainly, one of the hurdles in our marriages is the baggage that we bring into our marriage. I felt like I brought a couple duffel bags and like a camping bag and probably something else. My wife had a clutch, just brought it in and kind of had to walk through those certain things. Uh, but here's just a word of advice for you guys who haven't walked down the aisles yet. It is worth a discussion before you get into marriage to try to understand each other's badness that comes from your lives outside of marriage. Kind of the way that you're parented, the experiences that you grew up in, the experiences that you had in your life. Maybe there's some tragic things that have created some things in you. And so that is a, a, a very good place to be when you're in a relationship before marriage is to talk about what you're bringing in because you're going to see it, right? You're going to see it, and most likely it comes out in our, our worst moments. Uh, and so uh, one of the hurdles that we had is just some baggage that I brought in to our marriage. And here's the thing. I, for the life of me, could not see it for years. I could not see it, and the reason that I couldn't see it and change it is because it was how I viewed the world. That baggage was the lens in which I viewed the world, and so there's no way I could see it to change it because it's how I viewed the life. I just could not see it. Have you, do you guys remember those like 3D puzzles? When you're growing up with that 3D art with those swirls that you were supposed to look into it and an image popped out of you? You remember that stuff? I, I, I never saw anything in those things. Uh, it's just, I felt cross-eyed that I was, I was supposed to get this thing near, and I, like there's an elephant in there somewhere, I just couldn't see it. And that's the way I felt about my stuff in my life. And so one of the things that I kind of had to deal with in my life um, is this issue that I just kind of, I protect myself at all costs. And, my, and that's to the detriment of my wife. And, 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 and those that I love. And I'll put it this way. If somebody came at me, not physically, come at me, bro, right? Physically, I'm okay with that, right? But if somebody was threatening me emotionally or spiritually or mentally, like I have, there's something in me that kind of wants to protect myself. And what happens is I get really defensive or I just shut down and I walk away from the scenario. And for years and years and years, I could not see that. And so in one of the times that I was in counseling, dealing with my junk in my life, I have a great friend named Denny. He's a counselor for ministers. It's just a great, uh, he's just a great resource for me. We, we were walking through some realities in my life, and he said this. He said, do you know what you are? And I looked at him really confused, and I'm like, uh, I should know this, right? You're looking, I should know this, right? And I said, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, no, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. He says, you're a self-preserver. Do you not see it? You're a self-preserver. I said, what do you mean? He says, in any situation that you get into, 
you look to defend yourself, to protect yourself. And he said, look, that is a completely functional and good thing inside of an abusive relationship. That is good. If you're a prey in the, in the wilderness and you have a predator coming after you, that is also a good thing to self-preserve. But if you take that self-preservation mentality into a healthy relationship, it's dysfunctional, friend. And he says, why do you do that? Challenge me. He said, when you bring it into healthy relationships, you forget that they love you and they want the best for you. So why are you trying to put up walls? Why are you trying to defend yourself? You're only creating distance. And I'm telling you guys, that changed my life. I could not see it before. But his perspective helped me see something in myself that I couldn't see. I couldn't change it because I couldn't see it. And I couldn't see it because it was the lens in which I viewed the world. And so as we head into Mark 8 today, uh, we're going to talk about a lot of issues of hardening of heart, of perspectives that we have in our lives. What I want us to do is, and what I want us to do, what I want the word to do for us today and, and, and to push into our heart is, is this, is that there are things about you that you can never change. And I'm not saying that people don't change, but there are things about you that you can never change and you can't change them because you can't see them. And you can't see them because they're the very things in which you view the whole world by. And so I think the word of God here is going to press on to us uh, a, a, a force, a conviction about how, how are we operating in this world? What baggage am I holding on to that maybe is hardening in my heart and causing friction in my relationships and friction in my relationship with God? And so let's just begin today by walking through the word here in Mark 8. We're going to be in Mark 8, starting in verse 11. It says this. It says, the Pharisees came and they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to you to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and he went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. This is the disciples. They had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have your eyes, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And so to begin today, we'll bring some context in this situation. Jesus, uh, they're, they're, they're getting right out of a scenario where Jesus has fed 4,000 people. Uh, the word records 4,000. It's most likely 10,000 if you count women and children. They didn't kind of count uh, women and children in this day. So he feeds 10,000. They have seven loaves, a few fish. Jesus blesses them. M miracle, biblical proportion happens. Everybody eats to their fill, all the 10,000, and they come back with an abundance of food left over. It's an amazing, miraculous work from the Lord. And this comes after he fed 5,000, which would have been like 15,000. There's two miracles in here where he just supplies biblically 
godly. This, this applies food for people. And so Jesus has just done this, and they head into a boat to a place called, called Dalmutha, Dalmanutha, I should say, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And he arrives, and when he arrives on this shore, we saw it, these religious elite, these Pharisees, come up in this mob mentality, and it says that they're there to argue with him. They're there just to pick a fight with Jesus. They want to test Jesus. They want some sort of sign from him to prove that he's Messiah. And that's just absolutely ridiculous. It's so absurd that these men are asking for this sign. Did they not know what just happened? They and their Pharisee friends would have been around Jesus when he healed people from blindness, when he raised children from the dead, when he fed tens of thousands of people. They would have known about Jesus on his baptism, God parting the, side, the, 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 the clouds and saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So what else is, is there that these men need to say that this guy is special, that this is the Messiah? The things that he's saying, he's saying, the things that he's doing all points to this one, Jesus, being the Messiah. But they cannot see it. They cannot see it. And they can't see it because they, they really they don't want to see it. They don't want to see it. Um, so what, what is it that Jesus really could do for these guys to make them believe on this day? Nothing. There is nothing that Jesus could give to these men that would create belief in them because th they really don't want to believe. They really don't want to believe because they couldn't believe. They couldn't see straight. Their hearts were hardened and they couldn't see right. I think many of us in this room would say, well, man, it'd be great if the Lord just gave me a sign here. Can you just move a light here, Lord? And I'm just, that's it, Lord. If you would just drop down, uh, look, if you were in my, if you got, I need a sandwich, Lord, just put your face there on that sandwich somehow burnt in that. And if you did that, Lord, I'm off. I'm for you the rest of my life. We think that. If I just had a sign, I'd live for him better than Paul, better than disciples. I would be all in. The truth is this. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> No, you wouldn't. And how would I know that? Because <laughs> we have men in Scripture, the disciples, Pharisees, who saw miraculous things because of the broken, flawed heart as created beings. It maybe had a flash of like, oh, yeah, but it faded. We all want this sign. But listen, real faith is not built upon sign. It's just trusting God at his word. Real faith is not built on finding seeing a sign, it's about taking God at his word. And we have to understand that these Pharisees didn't understand this. And, and what we like to do is we, we just like to create realities where we, 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 we see a sign from God. I mean, we read about the, the lady that, that saw the face of Jesus burnt into her cheese toasty. Like, oh, it's divine, it's a miracle. Jesus' face is in the cheese toasty. My arm, look at that. That's the Messiah on the cross right there. We create these realities where we see signs just to kind of stimulate our faith, but they don't cause faith. They just, it's a flash in a pan. By the way, I said cheese toasty, right? Not grilled cheese. Let's just get that out of the way for everybody's understanding. So real faith never demands a sign. It's about taking God at his word. And so after all of this, Jesus skedaddles, gets back on the boat, essentially walks in, but okay, see you later. We're back on the boat here. That's the way you want to be. So he gets back on the boat. 
The disciples get in, and I love this. I love the disciples, man. They are great, but man, do they miss the mark. And so they get in the boat after this awesome conversation that they just witnessed with Jesus. And what is the first thing they do? Well, we don't have any bread, guys. <laughs> I love that. They've got one bread. They're so concerned about the bread. Ah, we forgot the bread. Never mind the intriguing conversation that Jesus just had with these Pharisees. They're, they're more concerned about food, which that's trouble. I know. Food is hard not to be concerned about. Jesus, on the other hand, is just still thinking about this whole conversation he had with the Pharisees. And I love this. It's on his mind. And we know it's on his mind because he turns the conversation. They're talking about bread. Here's bread. Hey, guys, talking about bread here. Hey, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Right? In Matthew's gospel, we find the same event recorded. Matthew includes this group called the Sadducees. So he's saying, hey, beware of these three groups, these religious, these political entities. Watch out for the leaven. And leaven in scripture most always is connected to evil. So watch out for these men, because if you allow it, they're like yeast. A little bit of yeast in a dough, what does it do? It affects the whole dough, right? It makes everything puff up, and you're not able to see right. And he said, don't listen to a word that they're saying, because if you do, a little bit of that is going to penetrate in your heart. Don't believe it. It's going to puff you up. You're not going to be able to see right, and your hearts are going to be hardened like them. So he gives them that nugget, and then what do we see the disciples do? What did he just say? He was talking about bread. That's right. We don't have any bread. I love that. They just, we, we don't have any bread, Jesus. They completely missed his point. Who could help us in this situation? They're so concerned. We've got all these people to feed. We've got one loaf. Who possibly could help us in this situation? And Jesus is just, just got done feeding tens of thousands of people by minuscule amounts of food, and they cannot see it. They cannot see that the very bread of life, Jesus, is in the boat with him. And so he's like, hello, do you not remember what I just did? Thousands of people, lots of food left over. Have you forgotten? And then Jesus asks another really personal question. Do you not understand yet? This feels a lot like the question that we talked about last week with, with the disciples where, where he asked, how is it that you don't know me by now? That was two weeks ago. How is it that you don't know me by now? The disciples' hearts are hardened and they can't see it. They're hardened. They can't see their lack of faith. And so what we see in these Pharisees, what we see in these disciples are hard hearts. Their hearts are hardened. And there are things about both of these groups that they just cannot see, that they are cultivating hard hearts with. Things that they can't change because they can't see them because they're using them to see the whole world by. And so what I wanna do for the rest of our time is kind of to flesh out what it is that these men are using to cultivate hardness of heart in their own life. Things that they can't see because they use them. And so before we do that, I wanna speak a little bit about hard hearts. We know in Scripture that the Lord controls our hearts. He's the one that makes it soft. He's the one that makes it hard. We certainly can cultivate environments for those things to happen. The Lord in Scripture has been known to turn people's hearts hard for his plan and for his glory. We see that in the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh's heart was hardened 
in Egypt during the Exodus, he did not let, he refused, the Pharaoh refused to let the, the Israelites go. God had hardened his heart for his plan and his purposes so that the Israelites would see the glory of God. They would, they would trust him. They would be desperate for God. And then at the moment, God released them. But God turns hearts harden on his will. He certainly can do that. For his plan and for his glory, for the big picture, he can turn people hard to move his plan forward. But we certainly can cultivate hardness of heart through how we see this world, how we create realities in our lives, how we understand things. And so I want to just pick out some of the things that we see present in this text that we see present in these men that are cultivating hardness of heart. So if you know anything about the Pharisees, what you will realize really quickly is that they're always about being right. They are more concerned about being right than anything else. Despite what the facts may say, despite God-divine miracles, they are more concerned about being right and being heard than they are about listening and understanding. We see that right off the bat. You got these Pharisees, what do they do instantly? They went to argue. They want to be right. And so what these Pharisees do is they ignore all the facts, and then they bring in people that support their viewpoint. They find all, you're going to believe what I believe, you believe what I believe, let's get together, we'll hunker together, we'll all feed each other, and we'll discredit everybody else out there, they're fools. They don't know anything. They just are concerned about being right. And in that desire, they're cultivating hardness of hearts because they don't understand their own brokenness. They're missing their own flawed humanity. Self-perception is self-deception. I've said that before. Look, we may be right in life sometimes, but that doesn't mean we don't listen and try to understand people. Some, sometimes, just like these Pharisees, we get in this mode where I'm right, and it creates this self-righteousness. These Pharisees are self-righteous people who only trust their own perspective in their own way and never could say for themselves, maybe I'm wrong here. There might be a chance I could be right, but maybe I'm wrong here. And I'm telling you, the Lord does not work and prosper through self-righteousness. That cultivates a heart of hardness. The second thing that we see present in these Pharisees, if we read the stories in our scripture, the events, they are so concerned about looking good. They are so concerned about looking the part than rather being transformed inside. When we read the story about the 12-year-old the girl last week, uh, Jesus comes, she's died, and, and he brings her back to life. But before he brings her back to life, it says that there were these people weeping and, and kind of making a fuss. Those are professional weepers. The Pharisees are these, this, they have this crew that goes to these sites, and they just, they make this show, this weeping show. Oh, it's a travesty. Ah! Look at me. Look how holy that I am. Look how much I'm groaning inwardly for the, the loss of these people. But it's not. It's a show. It doesn't mean anything. They don't look the part. We, we see the Pharisees engaging in these public prayers, these intricate, elaborate public prayers where they do actions and they pray out loud. Why? So people will notice them so that they would look good. They're just concerned about looking good than being transformed in their life. And through it, they create and cultivate a reality that builds hardness in heart. They cultivate a reality. And then we look at our, 
our friends, the disciples, who have faith, right? They have faith, but they can't get past their own personal needs and comfort to see Jesus for who they are. He is. They are looking through the lens of my own personal stuff, and they miss the fact that the bread of life, Jesus Christ, the one who just fed tens of thousands of people, is in the boat with them, and he can take care of all of their needs in life. They miss it because they can't see it because they're so concerned about themselves, so concerned about their personal supplication in their life, so concerned that they miss it. And so those are a few ways in which we see hardness of heart cultivated in this story. A few of the ways. The truth is, is there's lots of ways. There's lots of ways, lots of realities, lots of perspective that cultivate hardness of heart in us. And honestly, I could make a huge list, but that wouldn't do you any good. A lot of these things we can't see. So even if I would write it down, you couldn't see it. And that would feel really legalistic just to make a list of things we don't want to be about legalism. We want to be about transformation. And so today, what I, what, what I thought was a better route for us to kind of to look at the story of the Pharisees and look at the story of the disciples and see the hardness that has been kind of there in those lives is to kind of just see how it works out and manifests itself emotionally, physically in our lives. So maybe we can see in our spirit that maybe we connect with some of the things that we, we see in a, in a list of, of things that might be present. These are warning signs early warning signs of, of a heart that's becoming hard. So maybe these things will stand out to you. I got these things from a guy named Kerry Newhoff. Kerry Newhoff's my, one of my most favorite bloggers in the world. Uh, and he writes about these early warning signs of a hard heart. And so we'll walk through these, these things together. Now I want you to just to know this. There is a spectrum here, right? We see people of faith with some hardness of heart. They're missing out on the full, the full flourishing, the most richness of blessing in the Lord. Uh, just because you have some hardness in your heart towards aspects of God doesn't, doesn't create a reality where you're not His, all right? We, we're just missing on some flourishing. So maybe these things will register with you. Um, so seven early signs of a, of a hard heart. You don't really celebrate and you don't really cry. M maybe you do on the outside, but maybe emotionally on the inside you're just not connected. Number two you stop genuinely, like, caring. I think there's enough said with that. You just stop genuinely caring about things. Number, number three is, uh, and I think this is good, so much of what's supposed to be meaningful feels mechanical. I know that I'm supposed to, that it's supposed to be good, but just, I'm just driving through that. Number four, passion is hard to come by for anything. And maybe you have great passion for things that are trivial, but no passion for the Lord, no passion for people. Right? Number five, you no longer believe the best about people. Maybe you've been in some situations and it's just like, I can't see the goodness in people anymore. Number six, is you focus on patterns and not people. You know, people certainly behave, and I'll be the first to tell you this in predictable ways, uh, and if that goes unchecked, like it creates cynicism. Uh, because you get people who say, I want to change, and they never do. And that can be kind of become a pattern in life. And if you don't check that, you become fixated with patterns, and you do, the, do that at the expense of people. You belittle people, and you create hardness in heart. 
Number seven is this, is you, you overprotect a broken heart. Maybe this is a reality for you in the room that, that you have loved people well and, and they have never delivered on their promise. Maybe they, you trusted somebody and, and, and they just failed you and it just broke your heart. You had great expectations for people and they never happened and that trust was misplaced. And now in life, you just, just doubt that you can trust anybody. But here's the reality, that's gonna happen every day of your life. People are going to let you down. And if you let that reality go unchecked in your life, you're just gonna become critical about people. You're gonna stop loving people, you're gonna stop trusting people, stop believing, That's, that is not what the Lord has for us in this life. And the last one is this, is that you stop looking for what's good in people and in situations. Because life has its disappointment, and we all know that life has its disappointment, we create this scenario where we stop looking for what's good in people and in situations. Here's the thing, people are still people when they become Christians. And that's sometimes hard to get in our brains. People are still people even though they've become Christians and there's still a lot of junk in people's lives that are hard for us to deal with. And so we create these reality where even in our personal engagements with people, we're looking for what's wrong with them and not looking for what's right. And we get to this place where we just become overcritical. We come to places, and I've felt this in myself, where we're looking for what's wrong. So I go, go to an, another place. Uh, if I ever visit another place as a pastor, I've got to check myself because I'm always looking for what's wrong here. Uh, I'm critiquing things. And, and that just comes with just allowing unchecked uh, baggage in our life to, to go unfiltered through the Lord. And so these are just kind of eight kind of thought process that maybe you can feel in your life. Maybe you can't see what, what is hardening and cultivating that hard heart, but maybe you can sense a hard heart through those things. And so I, I'm just going to be real honest with you today. So convicting for me to read this list. Um, so convicting. Uh, I looked at this and I said, Lord, I'm on that spectrum. My heart is hardened in some ways when I look at that. You know, I, I, the, I just, I, I had a conversation with him and I said, Nikki, is my heart hard? Like <laughs> these things resonated in my life. The Lord has just brought them in me. I think I'm on that spectrum somewhere. So I, know this, I'm, I'm with you. I think the thing that people think about a, a pastoral job, just to be vulnerable with you, uh, is that you know, it's about loving people and everybody loves you back. It's just not the reality. Uh, I don't know if you know this, 80% of pastors leave ministry within the first five years. 80%. People get out of college and they have this mentality where I'm going to go out and I'm going to love the world and people are going to love me back. And then people are hard, right? I'm hard. And it's not what they think. We know this, that pastoral ministry is hostile to our souls. Ministry itself is hostile to our souls. And so if we don't do a good job as pastors of connecting with the Lord, spending time with him, hardness can creep in there. And, and I have to watch this. There were some convicting things in here that I need to check with the Lord. And so here's what I know with, with, with my God is that he creates my heart in, in softness. He creates the softness of my heart. He controls, he gives me a new spirit. He gives me a new heart. And so here's the things that the Lord has been convicting me in, in this reality of how I, how I cultivate for him an environment where my heart can be transformed by him. Just a few things that, look, I, I just repent. 
I just need, Lord, I have fallen short here. What a blessing that we can come to the Lord and say, I have fallen short here, Lord, and know that he, by his grace, looks on that situation and says, I love you. Now move on. I know that no more. I love you. And so we get to repent. I think some of us, we just, we, we get this, I don't want to admit my wrongdoings, but I'm telling you there is freedom in the Lord of repentance, to coming before him and saying, Lord, I'm falling short of you, Lord. And the Lord is just calling me, Lord, I'm, Lord, I'm falling short here. I, I repent of the, the areas that I'm falling short here, Lord. And my heart, I can sense it, is hard to some things. And so that's the one thing that the Lord, one of the things that the Lord, maybe that speaks to you. Maybe you just need to take a step of repentance. And Lord, I'm sorry, I'm, uh, I'm not living my best life for you. I'm not seeking after you in all things. The second thing that uh, I just think is important to cultivate softness in our hearts is just to behold his name, just to praise his name, to understand the glory of the Lord. I was coming back from a, a golfing outing this week, and, and one of my friends just said, you know, I've just been thinking of the majesty of the Lord. That word, majesty, has just been in my, my head. I've just been looking in creation and just think, how majestic is your name? When's the last time that you looked in creation and just thought, Lord, how majestic you are? When you looked at your family, Lord, how good are you to me? We get so consumed with the daily operations of life that we miss seeing the grandeur and the glory of our God. And in that reflection, you understand your position as people. God is infinitely above us, infinitely above us. We are broken people, and that should humble us. But it should encourage us because he's made us his. We are children of God. We are royalty, an heir to the throne. And so reflecting and beholding his name just creates this attitude in our hearts where we give glory to him and it creates an environment for the spirit to really work into our lives. And then the last one that, that the Lord has just has pressed on me this week is just making sure that we have ample amount of time to spend an intimate connection with the Lord. We talked about a few weeks ago, a month ago, about getting on the boat, getting away from things. That is so crucial for us to get away from the, the hecticness of life and just to get to a spot where we can have an intimate prayer life with the Lord, an intimate connection with, with him. And, and so those are some of the things that the Lord is, call, or is calling me to in this season, uh, to just to check this in my life. And I think he's calling all of us to, to go into those things because he wants people with soft hearts that are ready to do his work. He's partnered with us. He wants to be in ministry. We are his together in reconciliation. And so we have to be fervent about making sure that our heart is checked and that we're not creating these kind of realities in our life, and we're not missing on the richness and the flourishing and the contentment that there is from the Lord because our hearts are a little hard. And so that's been a challenge for me this week, and so I just want to challenge you guys today. I don't know where you're at in this. You know, we left these things on the board, but, but Proverbs 4, it says this. Proverbs 4 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for, it, for from it flows the spring of, of, spring of life. Like your heart, is the most important thing to the Lord. And if we allow the world, if we allow leaven to come in, in it just in a little bit, and we don't let that, we don't check that, it, it creates a situation where it gets into the entire dough and it puffs us up and we cannot see right. And, and so I'm just asking us to consider how we need to check our hearts, protect our hearts. And so maybe today it's just you needing to come and say, Lord, I'm sorry. 
I saw that list. I, Lord, I am not walking in the flourishing with you. Uh, my heart is hardened in some ways, and I, and I don't want to miss out what you got for me. And so maybe today it's time for you just to have that step of repentance and say, Lord, I've fallen short. And maybe you just need to begin, spend some time to remember his name, is behold his name, and, and consider spending your time with the Lord. But today we just invite you to be challenged by that. Let the word of God press in our hearts. Don't reject that. And if you need prayer today, if, you, if you're in a place, you're, Lord, I, I just need some prayer today. I'm dealing with a lot of stuff. Uh, my heart is hard maybe in this area. Lord, I need you to deliver me. We invite you to join us today. We have our prayer team that's going to come up after, after we pray or after we sing here. And they're going to, uh, well, during the singing, uh, and they're going to pray for us, and then I'm going to come back up in prayer. But join, join me in worship here at the closed service.